Well, I know two two things tonight as we get started. Uh, one, uh, you know, I'm not too far removed from my PhD studies. I graduated about a year ago from Southern, and um, and I know you're here just for the free food and because you have to maybe have to be. Uh, but the other thing is my uh, talk, talk tonight, the topic of mercy ministry is absolutely vital to local church health and um, so vital that it, at NAM we say that it, it should permeate everything that we do. Everything that we do in working with local churches uh, should involve to some degree or another uh, mercy ministry. So it's, uh, this is a vital uh, conversation and one that I hope that we as strategic thinkers and, and like Dr. Thomas said, uh, many of you on the the cutting edge, the front edge of, of research, exploring new areas of research, hopefully will address um, this this topic in your uh, considerations and your scholarly interests. Okay, so restorative mercy historically considered a path to church planning, social justice, and community transformation. The early Baptist missionary society leader Andrew Fuller realized a key truth concerning the relationship between church health and missions. The reason churches die and controversies arise in local churches or associations is because people do not have a vision that is grand enough to unite them in gospel causes. This truth has much to say to us when considering how to press the gospel forward within the current North American context. How can communities such as Ferguson or Sandtown and Penn North Baltimore move from deeply rooted brokenness to become a place where humans can flourish? There is a cacophony of answers regarding such questions. Yet it seems that no one has a solution that goes below surface problems to the systemic level. Perhaps we will find that these communities experience obviously overwhelming realities because the body of Christ has lost sight of a vision large enough to unite us as a missional people. We fail to work together to take the gospel to the darkest corners of our society, pursuing smaller ends rather than expanding Christ's kingdom with a unifying vision. In the midst of hair-trigger reactions on social media and the eventual social agnosticism concerning solutions, we can look to some of our wise predecessors who addressed social sorrows that were completely systemic, overwhelmingly unjust, and as seemingly hopeless as some of our contemporary social concerns. Specifically, the following essay will explore how issues of social justice relate to planting the gospel among unreached people in neglected U.S. communities. My argument is simple. Church planting, social justice, and community transformation are inseparably linked. Lasting social change will never occur apart from establishing healthy churches in a community. At the same time, it is quite wrong to claim that a gathered group of Christians is a church apart from engagement in social justice and community transformation. To argue this thesis, the following pages will begin by establishing parameters and definitions regarding the church, social justice, and community transformation. Then we will explore the shift of a politically radical social reformer, William Ward, whose life and philosophy of ministry serves as a model for many contemporary concerns, the shift from his radical social reform efforts to his position of gospel-driven social reform. In this historical model, we will encounter the connection between church planning, social justice, and community transformation, an intersection I call restorative mercy. So the church, social justice, and community transformation. Should the body of Christ engage in issues of injustice? 
Do these considerations distract the church from her ultimate calling according to Scripture? To answer these questions, the first step is to define social justice, the limits and expectations of community transformation, and to offer remarks concerning multiple pathways for addressing these questions. Justice. Not seeing the connection between social justice and the ministry of local churches is a sure path to irrelevancy in our broken world. Philip Ryken notes, as scripture attests, we live in a world marked by frustration, decay, and pain. Michael Goheen offers a helpful perspective on this issue as well, stating, we should not allow our 21st century individualistic bias to blind us to the social, political, and cultural dimensions of the coming of God's kingdom in Jesus. Sin takes communal and corporate forms, and its power corrupts all areas of human life. The effects of sin, therefore, mark our lives at the individual and systemic levels. The church, in turn, must have a substantial response to social injustice. The solution, according to Bruce Ashford, is to speak out against this misdirection of God's world in the hope of seeing shalom replace human sorrow. Chris Brooks correctly identifies the importance of social justice as the defining mark of identity for minorities in the U.S. and and believes addressing social injustice is a primary means of ministering in an urban context. He writes, It is essential that we give serious thought and consideration to the issue of social justice. Historically, the language of equality has been the most effective vehicle used by leaders for connecting to the hearts and minds of urbanites. This is because the narrative of African Americans and Hispanic peoples in America has been marked by the struggle for respect, fairness, and self-determination. Yet, as Brooks points out, conservative evangelicals operating from a perspective of privilege, meaning persistent injustices are not a part of their daily experience, dismiss addressing such issues as outside the parameters of gospel ministry, having the luxury to focus rather on theological orthodoxy and morality. It is vitally important, however, for ministers to see the relationship between the need for social justice and the mission of local churches. It is helpful in this discussion to make a distinction, which I believe is more than simple semantics concerning the issue of justice. I do not prefer the phrase social justice, which is much different from what I believe to be biblical justice, although I'm willing to use the former term to participate in current conversations. In general, the concept of justice is correcting something that is wrong. It is righting a situation that is not what it should be. How do we determine what is right and wrong? For instance, how can we say that abortion is wrong? If so many people want the freedom to abort an unwanted child before it is born, how can we possibly object? Ultimately, social justice attempts to define right and wrong according to standards set set forth by our society. But I argue for a higher standard, that of biblical justice. As believers, we should seek the welfare of our cities based on biblical standards, not social determinations. Many of our socially acceptable practices lead to human misery rather than human flourishing. Biblical justice should be our pursuit, correcting wrongs according to God's word to see the peace of Christ permeate our society. Biblically, justice comes in the form of restorative mercy. Passages such as Ephesians 4, 22-24 provide a glimpse of mercy that restores and enables human flourishing rather than furthering dependency. Paul calls Christ's followers to put off old habits, thought patterns, and ways of approaching life by putting on the new self one has in Christ. 
we find an example that Paul uses a few verses later when he commands the thief to no longer steal, but rather to do what? He calls the thief to be productive so that he may have something to share with anyone in need, verse 28. To be restored to God's design for that person. That's his vision of restorative mercy for the thief. To offer restorative mercy to someone in the midst of suffering is a call to flee from sorrow, despair, and brokenness in order to pursue righteousness and experience human flourishing. Questions arise, however, concerning transformative expectations and limits. Is restorative mercy limited? To what extent can we expect to see biblical justice? Sober optimism. We should pursue biblical justice with a transformative expectation that I call sober optimism. Colossians 1, 15 through 23 is a well-known passage that exalts Christ as being the most glorious being in human history. We know that Jesus deserves the place of honor because he created all things and holds all things together by the power of his word, as well as being the head of the church and God incarnate. Verse 20 shows us that God provided a way to reconcile everything to himself through Christ's blood, meaning there can be peace in family relationships, finances, local ordinances and laws, and educating children whose reading level is below expectations. In addition to reconciling our souls, the gospel implies a possibility of peace in all areas of life and the various spheres of our society. As one author notes, the task of urban apologetics should be to show that Christ and the gospel have much to say about issues such as economics, energy, homelessness, and immigration. Our mission is to present a Christianity that is as concerned with human flourishing as it is with doctrinal orthodoxy. Michael Goheen adds a helpful perspective. The kingdom of God is, first of all, the power of God at work in the Messiah and by the Holy Spirit to restore all of creation and all human life from the pollution of sin and its devastating effects. Luke 9 and 10 show us that Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the kingdom of God as having arrived and to heal people of their sicknesses. Applying the same command today, we have a biblical justification to seek the welfare of our fellow human beings in the midst of various sicknesses, whether that particular form of uh, manifestation is unhealthiness in a physical sense, an unjust and predatory financial arrangement, or paralyzing legal structures. In this sense, the God or the kingdom of God has arrived in the present through believers preaching and healing, and yet is still to come fully in the future. Some Christians struggle with this understanding of ecclesiology, but we have to ask ourselves if their thinking aligns with Scripture. For example, one word claims that the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and gathering these disciples into a church that they may worship and obey Jesus Christ now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. Such assertions of disciple-making to evangelism and the internal aspects of institutional churches. Randy Neighbors offers a helpful response to such anemic ecclesiology. Sadly, there are some individuals in churches that come across as hard-hearted and do not seem to care very much about others. These churches may even come up with spiritual reasons for not showing mercy, thinking it hinders and redirects their primary mission of biblical preaching, teaching, and evangelism. Riken agrees with Neighbors' sentiment. The root causes of poverty, vulnerability, and marginality do not all lie within the individual, and therefore evangelism and charity are not the limits to our call. The results of the fall and its curses and its curse have affected our social structures so that some are weighted in favor of the powerful and against the poor, a condition that God absolutely hates. 
we must operate on the assumption that our task biblically is a call to see the kingdom of God expressed in stark contrast to darkness and sorrow. We should, according to Scripture, go into communities with an optimistic perspective concerning the possible outcomes of our work as ambassadors of Christ. But this possibility of peace is not a guaranteed reality in this life, which is sobering. There are times when we must look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, to the return of Jesus and his restoration of all things to what they should be. In some situations, there will be no peace until that day. For some people, loving this life is not an option, and their only hope is the day when Christ will alleviate their suffering. As Ashford states, when Christ returns, he will return as the victorious king. Until that time, the Christian community should live its life as a seamless tapestry of word and deed. When we witness and obey in this manner, we benefit the world by serving as a preview of God's coming kingdom, the era in which social and cultural realities will be directed toward Christ. Sober optimism captures the idea of biblical justice in a way that helps us understand our responsibility as God's people while offering helpful limits to our expectations regarding potential results. We should claim all for Christ without being shocked if causes do not move forward in a particular direction. And here I want to skip over, I apologize, but due to time, I will skip over the section of multiple pathways of contribution. But just to make a few remarks here, um, in urban church planning, we need to create a model that does not overburden a pastor. We need to find people who will basically come alongside of church planters and pastors in an urban context and be a community developer. Someone who will come alongside in a partnership with a pastor and work towards these ends of sober sober optimism. Um, And basically I see a major role that's been neglected up to this point for marketplace professionals. Uh, When I first started off at the North American Mission Board, I heard a lot of talk about asking the Delta pilot to leave Delta and go be a church planner. And I pushed back on that uh, in very uncomfortable ways at times, saying, no, we need to ask that Delta pilot pilot to go be a core team member of churches, uh, church plants. The dentist needs to go and continue in his his or her dentistry and offer free dental care to people without health care. And uh, so the role of marketplace professionals is is one of the pathways that I highly advocate. And also we need to make a distinction between informal, uh, organic ministries of the organism of, of Christ, thinking in Kuyperian terms, and formal institutional efforts. So, uh, and, and I have a very specific way of, of how I help churches think through the issue of when should a ministry to a particular social issue be an organic ministry, and when should it be a formalized offering of the institutional church. Um, and I'm happy to explore that more in depth in the Q&A. In our remaining time together tonight, I want to discuss lessons we can learn from the Serampore missionaries, particularly for the North American urban context. As we will see, William Ward and the other Serampore missionaries understood the church to be central to meaningful social justice and community transformation, and the vehicle through which lasting community transformation would come. William Ward, the model of restorative mercy. William Ward, born on October 20, 1769, received his first employment opportunity at the Darby Mercury at the age of 13. It was during this time that Ward increased his interest in political and social reform. He began printing editorials reporting favorably on the French Revolution and meetings that called for political change. 
Dubbed as the Bleak Age, this time was one of movement, speculation, inequalities, and injustices, and full of bitter strife. People were tired of the assumed God-ordained rights of the English aristocracy and called for major changes throughout English society, a sentiment with which Ward closely identified. As the horrors of the French Revolution circulated throughout England, however, reform societies began to drown under the reverse tide of loyalist sentiment. Officially, people like Ward had to find new causes to trumpet when the British government passed a law in mid-1792 mid against seditious meetings in literature. Ward was not one to scuttle his convictions so quickly as he narrowly avoided imprisonment on several occasions because of his radical publications and borderline rebellious actions. Ultimately, however, he proved to be a politically and socially aware individual with a slight taste for activism, a bent that would not sustain an outright rebellion in his life over the coming years. Samuel Stennett, Ward's close friend and first biographer, wrote, The time had come and was now drawing near when his religious character was to be fully developed and his energies directed to more important objects. It was time for Ward to put his former self to death and embrace fully a new direction for his life. At this point, Ward knew something different was needed, but it was unclear how he would unite his concerns for political and social change with his newfound faith. His mature position of gospel-driven reform would not find full expression for another eight years. In August 1797, Ward began studying for the ministry at Ewan Hall in Yorkshire under Dr. John Fawcett. Fawcett was a respected theologian with an established reputation for advocating Baptist missions through printed pamphlets. This environment was ripe for Ward to mature in a way that would combine his developed professional abilities with his newfound vocational interest in gospel ministry. This rare combination soon caught the attention of Baptist Missionary Society leaders, hereafter BMS, and in the fall of 1798, John Sutcliffe invited Ward to serve the society as a printer missionary. It is somewhat amazing that Ward received his appointment as a missionary so quickly in light of his widely known political radicalism. Particular Baptists were outspoken politically, although not to the same activist degree as Ward. BMS representatives were in no mood to allow flexibility on this issue as they had reasons to believe that the BMS enterprise in Bengal would soon face the British government's wrath because of two of their missionaries who were consistently politically disruptive. In such an uneasy climate, the BMS accepted Ward as a missionary printer despite his politically charged past. Undoubtedly, when the BMS committee met to examine Ward, they made full inquiry into his political principles and history. His character and qualifications were exactly what the BMS wanted. His political principles, however, required further consideration. Despite potential concerns, the BMS leaders, among the BMS leaders, Ward departed for Serampore in May of 1799, carrying strong affirmations from Fuller, William Carey, and Samuel Pierce. Carey's pressing needs trumped obvious concerns related to Ward, thus creating an option that might have been unimaginable otherwise. Fuller would not waste the opportunity to set the tone for what he expected politically from Ward and the other newly appointed missionaries during their commissioning service. He admonished them to preach the gospel and leave off any abiding interest in social action. It seemed Fuller and other ministers associated with the BMS were in agreement, establishing the church and working for social change were irreconcilably different ends. The BMS, however, would come to realize through Ward's contributions that the two agendas were not exclusive after all. 
Eventually, Ward evolved to a poten- from a potentially suspect missionary candidate to a stalwart member of the Serampore Trio, without whom the success at Serampore became unthinkable. Throughout his missionary career, Ward never dropped his social and political concerns to the degree that Fuller might, might have liked, but he refrained from advocating political and social action apart from spiritual transformation. The ultimate intention in Ward's efforts were at least threefold, to establish new mission stations, send out native preachers, and offer mercy to humans suffering injustice. As he developed vocationally, intermixing his ministerial endeavors and marketplace qualifications, Ward evolved to become a gospel-driven reformer rather than an activist whose actions were guided by socially determined ends. In the life of Ward, therefore, we should note the difference between social and political activism that is rooted in gospelist solutions to the frustrations surfaced by injustices and an approach that had the same intention of addressing social ills based on completely, a completely different set of convictions. The answers to human sorrow are quite different in Ward's early activism compared to his efforts once the gospel informed his actions. Ward came to understand this difference while working with Kerry in Bengal and stated his approach to restorative mercy in 10 principles known as the Serampore form of agreement. of agreement, the principles of restorative mercy. I need to acknowledge six principles within the Serampore philosophy of ministry that we will not discuss in depth. The Bengalis' need for Christ, the missionaries' intense study of Bengali t- culture, the missionaries' desire to avoid unnecessarily offending Bengalis, the urgency for preaching the gospel felt by the missionaries, the centrality of Christ's atonement in their theologically informed missiology, and the missionaries' epistemological foundations of Scripture. While we can learn much from these principles, some other points from Ward's form of agreement have deeper implications for this evening's discussion. Yet we should not overlook these principles as inconsequential because they offer a glimpse into the ministerial culture of the Serampore mission. Keeping in mind these values as we examine the other four points will help us to remember the end goal of establishing thriving churches that manifest the kingdom of God and transform communities according to the gospel. So the four primary points, principles. Foundational spirituality. For all of the schemes that we can create, we must not forget the means, according to Scripture, for seeing transformative plans come to fruition. The Serampore brethren committed themselves to a foundational principle that they believe served as the underlying requirement for effective social change, beseeching the king. This principle had implications for both personal and ministerial considerations. As particular Baptists, the missionaries placed themselves tremendous value, placed in themselves tremendous value on personal and corporate piety. In order to faithfully discharge their perceived missionary responsibilities, as stated in the other nine principles, the missionaries believed that they had to cultivate a deep personal piety. Through prayer, which they saw as the root of personal godliness, the missionaries sought to develop their own spirituality before ministering to others. In numerous statements, they articulated a belief that prayer pre- uh, preserved personal spiritual health, cultivated the faith of their native brethren, strengthened the churches they planted, and brought Bengalis to faith in Christ. Prayer for the Serampore brethren was essential to continued faithfulness personally and in ministry, both for themselves and their native brethren. Healthy spirituality brought about expected results. Positive developments in one's ministry were the Lord's blessing and directly connected to their piety. 
piety as passed down in the particular Baptist fold was thus the foundation for effective ministry. Do we in the West give half-hearted acknowledgement to the spiritual battle facing our communities today without truly understanding the serious nature of our commission from the Lord? Ignoring Paul's teaching in Ephesians 6.12, we think that we can battle systemic oppression and binding personal choices through, through government programs, being more tolerant, or marching through the streets. While these things may contribute to social change, we need to glean wisdom from the Serampore brethren. Lasting social change will not happen apart from the efficacious means identified by the missionaries. In his farewell letters, Ward called his readers to organize themselves into benevolent societies on behalf of slaves and abused women in India, but he was appalled at their lack of attention given to the biblical means of effective change. While praising these Western societies for their desire to bring about social change in India, he chastised Western believers because they gave little attention to the only means God has ordained to transform a society— which is action undergirded by prayer and fasting. We may, not, may we not face Ward's criticism by thinking that we can make substantial changes systemically apart from God's efficacious means. Sure, we may not experience demonic manifestation in the North American context the way missionaries describe in international settings. The, demon, the, the demonic influences in our society are much more subtle in the forms of paternalistic missions or dependency on government programs to, to sustain life. Prayer for wisdom and a movement of God, not our ingenuity and activism, is therefore a first step in addressing social sorrow. There are substantial points of action that the people of God should take to address social problems, but do we dare think that we can overcome the root causes of social injustice through our own ingenuity? Why do we see a disconnect between theological studies, planting churches in depressed communities, and the complexities of injustice? Surely it is because we do not apply teachings about spiritual warfare to everyday occurrences of our Western context. Ward's farewell letters, calling us to prayer and fasting, offer a helpful rebuke in such instances. We should take substantial steps to alleviate human suffering and restore individuals and communities to biblical ideals, but we must not forget the words of this gospel-driven reformer. Whether the issue under consideration is local human trafficking, racism, or the growing uh, homeless population, the body of Christ will not break the back of injustice apart from prayer and fasting. The efficacious means for seeing lasting change lying behind all of our advocacy and action is the biblical discipline of begging God to take action according to his might for his glory. Dignity. Based on this foundational spirituality, restorative mercy in the life of the Serampore community of faith sought to uphold the dignity of Bengalis. The missionaries knew that restorative mercy has to lead to dignity on, behalf, on, on both the individual and systemic level, or it is not very merciful. How did the missionaries restore individual and systemic dignity? As a core conviction expressed within the Serampore writings, they felt the need to treat Bengalis with the utmost respect, never belittling them or being haughty towards them. In essence, they rejected any hint of moral or cultural superiority which is so often a point of criticism within recent scholarship that generally connects missionaries to imperialism. Rather than treating Bengalis according to these false perceptions, the missionaries were willing to hear their complaints, everything brought before us in the most open, upright, and impartial manner. 
They tied directly their treatment of Bengalis in this respectful way to an expected sacrifice of their own interest and potential pride for the sake of their listeners' eternal salvation. Anything less was unacceptable, according to the missionaries. This principle, as the Serampore missionaries understood clearly, is an important part of restorative mercy because it establishes an empowering culture within a group of believers. The missionaries' growth as Christians was tied to the dignity of Bengali believers discipling them as much as they discipled the Bengali believers. One of the greatest means of restoring dignity to men and women who are otherwise without honor and distinction is to allow them to have authority, the authority to speak the gospel into our lives. One-way ministry only reinforces an us-them mindset, whether that line is drawn by economic distinctions, racial lines, or educational accomplishments. What one finds while ministering to the economically poor, for instance, is that we are coming to save, but also to be saved by the underprivileged. The key here is a mental shift. The believer's responsibility is to help people move from mere recipients of relief to personal and community development through capitalizing on their assets. There is a vast difference between needs-based relief ministry and asset-based personal and community development. Too often, mercy ministries are not merciful, ultimately, because they do not lead to developmental ends that restore dignity. Assuming that one accomplishes the biblical responsibility of mercy by meeting the felt needs of an individual through commodity-based exchange alone, this only perpetuates a Christian version of the welfare system. Simply redistributing commodities falls short of the restorative mercy that leads to dignity within an individual and community. As Chris Brooks states, over time, this wealth redistribution and one-way charity only causes people to feel incapable of providing for themselves. Dignity is derived from the right to enjoy the harm earned success. True prosperity and empowerment come when a person is given equal access to education, employment, and entrepreneurial opportunities, and is allowed to achieve based upon one's own hard work and ingenuity. Truly, Brooks, as well as John Perkins and other authors who think along these lines, understand restorative mercy that leads to dignity, access, empowerment, and opportunities. In connection to the life of Christ's people is the path to bring dignity to a broken community and depressed individual. Communal discipleship. Rather than a programmatic approach to restoring dignity, the missionaries possessed a strong view that solidifying a gospel presence in Bengal would only come through a, a close community of believers committing to caring for one another deeply. Within this principle, they stated several implications regarding how indigenous Bengali culture would be transformed by the gospel as conducted through true gospel community. This approach to living in close community with other disciples served as a strong testimony to the love of Christ and to the end of tearing down caste distinctions in favor of ethnic and social unity. First, in their minds, this commitment included addressing the pressing concerns of native converts, caring for their disciples' physical as well as spiritual needs. They stated, We ought also to remember that these persons have made no, no common sacrifices in renouncing their connections, their homes, their former situations, and means of support, that, and that it will be very difficult for them to procure employment with heathen masters. 
Realizing that Bengalis would lose caste and face social ostracism, the missionaries believed that if they did not sympathize with them in their temporal losses for Christ, we shall be guilty of the greatest cruelty. Hence, the missionaries stated here a principle that they carried out during their time in Bengal. They met their, phys- their disciples' physical needs through aid to the sick and poor, as well as funding entrepreneurial efforts by their disciples facing consequences for belief in Christ. Additionally, they bought prostitutes out of sex slavery, bringing them into the fold of their church to help these women establish a new life. By the time that Ward wrote his form of agreement, His combined interest in social action and gospel proclamation thus came to full fruition. His highly prosperous print business, and again, this goes back to multiple pathways and his former vocational interests mixed with ministerial interests. His highly prosperous print business met a multitude of needs within the mission's holistic discipleship generating in excess of 2,000 pounds of income annually Ward's business supported the Serampore missionary enterprise fully. Around his 13th year on the mission field, Ward reported that his print business was outfitted with 10 presses, employed over 200 natives who had lost caste for the sake of Christ, and manufactured their own paper to reduce costs. The print business was so successful by this point that Fuller reported to churches supporting the BMS that the press covered between 43 and 50 percent of the society's entire global expenses every year. So we wonder, okay, the cooperative program may be dwindling. What do we do about it? Let's go find some businessmen. (laughs) Fuller stated that the BMS spent between 6,000 and 7,000 pounds per year spreading the gospel globally. Through subscriptions to the Serampore publications and other products of the press, Carrie Marshman and Ward contributed approximately 3,000 pounds to the BMS fund per year. One must keep in mind that this 3,000 pounds reported by Fuller was in addition to financing the Serampore operation as well as several other English missionaries in India and numerous indigenous missionaries' full-time salaries. Ward's contribution at, at Serampore thus provided an enormous amount of income, creating a self-sustained missional business model that funded the majority of, of the society's entire global operation. Another point worth noting within this principle concerns the patience they applied to their discipleship relationships. They expected lapses in the faith and conduct of their disciples and sought to be patiently gracious in such instances. Recognizing that growth in one's faith may include setbacks, the missionaries stated this principle and put it into practice on many occasions throughout their tenure in Bengal. For instance, their first indigenous leader from a Muslim background repeatedly faced church discipline for being abusive to other Bengali believers. For for contemporary considerations, there is perhaps no greater issue to consider than a close community of faith. Chris Brooks asserts that economic freedom for the poor can only be achieved in a free economy where gifted leaders are committed to living among those whom they serve and advocating for fairness and opportunities of education, employment, and entrepreneurial opportunity. Central to Brooks's argument is that restorative mercy will not happen apart from the body of Christ living in community with the people they are trying to disciple, not guaranteeing equality of outcomes, but rather ensuring equality of opportunity. Residents in broken communities do not need more resources apart from a holistic perspective. 
They need men and women who will help them reorient their entire reality to one that is gospel-informed. Often, people with economic means are guilty of trying to address the plight of indigenous urbanites while avoiding personal interaction as much as possible. The greatest apologetic for the gospel available to the church, however, is to live among a targeted people as planting solid urban churches requires deep levels of trust among people whose common experience is marked by overwhelming injustice. Restorative mercy is not a process of doing acts of mercy for people, but rather walking with people in community to call them to life in Christ, to beauty and to goodness. Truly, many of the churches in the in the North American context, having the greatest impact are ones following the path established by the Serenport Brethren. Capitalizing on the vocational abilities of, of people like Ward, churches, churches are utilizing the marketplace skills of the congregation's members to address social ills while they share the gospel. The resulting pattern is a thrilling combination of thriving churches bringing about, bringing about justice and human flourishing, all of which transforms formerly neglected and depressed communities. But the question then becomes, who will lead these established communities of faith? Indigenous leaders. <clears throat> Another c- conviction formalized in the form of agreement mm-hmm. concerned the missionaries' thoughts on the indigenous ministers. They believe that developing some of their native disciples into effective ministers of the gospel was the way to spread Christianity throughout Asia. According to them, it is only by the the means of native preachers that we can hope for the universal spread of the gospel throughout this immense continent. Generally, the form of agreement marked a general shift in their ministry efforts that occurred around 1805. From his arrival in India until the month of August in 1805, Ward went out on frequent itinerant preaching tours throughout the Bengali presidency. This first phase of his ministry was one of personal preaching and printing. He carried out personally the mission's print ministry and dissemination of the gospel throughout Bengal through preaching and distributing of his gospel tracts. The second phase of his Bengali ministry following late 1805, brought about a general shift in his thinking concerning indigenous ministers and a reassessment of the role of British missionaries to establishing the church throughout Bengal. For the Serampore missionaries, this conviction meant that they needed to form their native brethren into separate indigenous churches that were led by indigenous pastors. Usman wrote, a real missionary becomes a father to his people. Indeed, just as a father educates his children to independence, so William Carey and the other Serampore missionaries tried to bring up the native, not as, a tran- not as transformed Europeans, but as converted Indians with an Indian life. This conviction was not one of simple pragmatism in that the missionaries only took into consideration issues of needing more ministers or the cost of sending out native preachers compared to European ministers. While such matters were major points of consideration, Kerry Marshman and Ward had a desire to ensure that indigenous believers would remain native in their customs while addressing adequately the realities faced by Bengali converts. An implication of their conviction regarding the dignity of Bengalis coupled with this core value meant that they let let natives lead the Bengali church, trusting Bengali leaders to address Bengali cultural issues. When thinking through various Bengali cultural realities, they believe that indigenous believers 
could conform such matters to scriptural teaching under the Holy Spirit's guidance. Rather than forcing natives to convert or native converts to forsake certain questionable native customs, the missionaries sought to overlook certain practices that were unpleasant to their European sensibilities temporarily, and they sought to guide their native brethren gently. By personal example and mild persuasion, the missionaries believed that they could help Bengali Christians open and illuminate their minds in a gradual way rather than use authoritative means. They believed that forcing their disciples to abandon certain practices would lead to hypocrisy if they did not first develop personal convictions biblically regarding such issues. But how do we cultivate indigenous leaders among people who have heard the message that they are inferior in every way for their entire lives? It is within a community of faith that such restorative cultivation occurs. The gospel transforms a person's mentality from seeing himself as a mere recipient of someone's generous commodities to a human being bearing the image of God with assets and leadership capabilities. This mental shift, positively affecting the missionary going into that community as well as a targeted people, occurs through intentional leadership development, one that requires great patience as exhibited by the Serampore missionaries. Also, we should not mistakenly believe that indigenous leadership development is one approach to establishing a church within a community. It is rather a necessity. We may gentrify a community if we flood the neighborhood with several hundred strong believers, a philosophy of church planning that certainly changes the aesthetic of a community by displacing former residents. But we must question the validity of this missiological approach. The body of Christ is not mandated to make a community look better aesthetically as the end goal, but rather to be missionaries, taking the gospel to places currently experiencing the darkness of enmity with God. In that mandate, we must follow the Serampore example and cultivate indigenous leaders to reach their own communities. Finally, we must consider the difference between planting a church that is led by a mixture of outsiders and and indigenous leaders as compared to establishing missional communities led by the long-term residents of a targeted area. In many cases, the cultural lines between outsiders serving as missionaries within a community create unnecessary sociological barriers that hinder the gospel from spreading throughout a local people. Our goal should be to plant indigenous-led congregations that correct unjust social problems according to to the gospel and result in a transformed community. Questions regarding the specific composition of a congregation's leadership, the transition of oversight from outsiders to include indigenous leaders, and the process of indigenous leadership development are all serious matters to, to, to study. One point is beyond question. Equipping and empowering indigenous leaders, as understood by the Serampore missionaries, is vitally important for church planting, social justice, and community transformation in the North American urban context. Conclusion. For the seasoned William Ward, lasting social change would only occur if the gospel permeated a society. He came to see that one should not expect significant change apart from the rooting of the gospel in India. Ward had thus transformed from a political activist to a gospel activist, in one sense, by the end of his career. By looking at Ward's progression from political and social activism to gospel-driven reform, we can begin to get a sense of where the church, 
concerns of social justice and community transformation intersect. As Ward came to understand, this intersection is a place in which the body of Christ engages or missionally to enable a community to experience restorative mercy. Thank you. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for um, that really provocative, I think, in many ways, uh, lecture. Now, as is the normal order of business, we have a Q&A. Just a word uh, for those of you that saw it come in. There is dessert. There is banana pudding back there. So if you can't wait then even in the Q&A time, you can feel free one at a time to go back there and get a uh, 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 some dessert. I would rather them go ahead because it means they'll be happier <laughs> and won't be you know, antagonistic or anything. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, all right, so what we're going to do is a little Q&A. And so if you have a question uh, for Dr. West, please rate, you know, raise your hand. And when you ask your question, identify yourself, where you're from, what you're studying, and then ask the question, okay? So uh, let's go ahead and open up with questions. Oh. <laughs> Dwayne Milione, I teach preaching here. And... Uh, Really insightful. Um, a, a question I've had that I've been pondering is uh, um, amongst conservative churches like in our denomination, there seems to be a resurgence of interest in issues of justice within the last 10, 15 years. At the same time, there seems to be resurgence in the interest of biblical theology, especially emphasizing sort of the kingdom motif or, or meta-narrative. Have you found any connection between those two? And if so, would you say that there's a, a necessity in our preaching to sort of emphasize more of a kingdom motif or a biblical theology in order to motivate our congregations towards justice issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... Um, <clears throat> I agree with you concerning the resurgence. My wife and I were missionaries in India, and we're, you know, we had been involved in mercy ministry, but really didn't know that that's what we were doing. Then we went to India and encountered systemic issues. Um, <clears throat> completely changed my perspective on issues of poverty and, you know, prostitution, all these kind of things. When I came back from India, I wanted to know, okay, what do I do about this in the local context? Because I was a missions pastor at that point. And I had no one in Baptist life to turn to, so I went to the Presbyterians. Um, yeah, uh, Fickert and I became uh, friends over the years and, uh, and learned a lot from him. Um, but now I see a massive resurgence in this interest of mercy. And I do think it is tied to, um, I think you and I were talking about this today, this this flood of interest in scholarly activity within Southern Baptist life that you really, that I, I look at, you know, mid, early 90s, you, you just see this flood happening. And with that, I think implications in uh, healthy biblical theology, which includes a, a kingdom motif, um, whereas Maybe we could um, look at Southern Baptist life and for all the great things that happened in the 20th century, see a, a very 
um, you know, I don't want to keep using this word, but I don't have my thesaurus up here, but an, an anemic theology that would be um, representative of um, theological pursuits that, that weren't necessarily to the same degree that they are today. So I, I really see a, a, a resurgence in the early 2000s, like you're saying, that really I think we can date back to a resurgence of deep theological studies in Southern Baptist life about a decade before that. So yeah, I absolutely see the connection. Other questions? Hi. Uh, my name is Shane Shaddix. I'm doing work in historical theology. Actually, working with Fuller, so I really appreciate good. this area in particular. Uh, I w- would love to hear your comments. You, you mentioned it in passing, I guess, but in terms of the uh, distinguishing and deciding uh, when to um, have ministries uh, mainly as organic ministries flowing out from just the discipleship of the believers, the members of a church, and when those need to transition to more of an organized um, kind of collective ministry that the church owns. I'd just love to hear your thoughts and and how you parse that out. Yeah, I think there are a few um, issues that exist in every society that every church should institutionally um, engage. And I would say that those can uh, be um, issues, particularly around children, uh, mentoring children, uh, you know, foster care and adoption. We should think through that institutionally. Um, caring for the elderly, <clears throat> the widow, um, just looking at neglected people segments within our societies, uh, that we should have uh, institutional ministries to those neglected people segments. And generally, I'd, I use a funnel uh, that if I had, you know, PowerPoint, I would put up here to show that that we can basically funnel all of our people, pour all of our people, thinking in terms of what a funnel does. Uh, all of our people into the top, where we can engage in activities as an institution, uh, such as mentoring uh, children or um, going out and feeding the homeless at a local shelter. And then you see less and less people, in the same way that a funnel would, would happen, that'll be engaged in deeper commitments to mercy, such as rescuing women out of uh, sex, the sex trade. Um, very few people are called to that, and I don't think it's wise to ask the church to institutionally begin a ministry to human trafficking. But you will have members, individual members, that will be very interested in that, and they will unite with other members of other churches. And that's that. And there's a gray line there that I help churches think through. When do you sh- make that shift? Uh, and what ministries should be above uh, the institutional level, above that line, and then uh, what ministries go down into the organic level. Um, but it, it it really gets down to trying to help people at the, the very bottom. And I find that a few people get this, at least at this point, that if we can apply vocational capabilities to these drastic human issues, that we can see massive things happen in communities. So <clears throat> one example would be his bridge builders in Dallas, Texas. Uh, the particular neighborhood is Bonton. It's, you know, Bonton, the worst kind of neighborhood you can possibly imagine. Uh, several CFOs and CEOs united and went in and took their business skills to try to create jobs for these people who are in overwhelming poverty. And they created jobs, began mentoring the people uh, in that neighborhood and seeing people come to faith. And there's a thriving church that came out of that that ministry of them trying to correct 
social justice. Because, you know, to, to have a job worth having, you have to have transportation. Well, these people can't have transportation to get out of the neighborhood to go get a quality job, um, but they need that transportation in order to go get a job, but you, you have to have a job in order to have transportation, that kind of thing. So they went in and just completely um, revitalized that community through their business skills and creating for-profit, a multi-million dollar business venture that just rolls all the profits back into the ministry. And it's an it's ama- amazing thing. Um, are we going to create a program Along those lines, probably not. But at the institutional level, we can employ Jobs for Life and ministries like that that will help do some things uh, institutionally, a lot of our people, but strategically at that social change level, um, you know, we get down into the organic level. Um, and it's, it's hard for me to explain that without the, the visual. I'm sorry. But. Other questions? Back in the front. My name is Jared Richard. I'm studying um, preaching here, but I serve on staff in the missions department at Champion Forest Baptist Church in Houston. And uh, we have a very large Hispanic congregation, so we have a lot of immigration issues. And so my question for you would be, um, at at what point or at what level, um, when change is needed at a political level, uh, do we as a church, or in your opinion, do we as a church engage politically when injustice requires at least in part a political solution so at what point do we engage as a church politically when it requires a political solution that's in part yeah yeah, I think that gets down into the the bottom level of the funnel concept. Um, I wrote a blog on the ER, ERLC's website when all the stuff was happening, was that, about a year ago with uh, kids flooding. So you should go read that blog because I don't remember exactly what I said. But but I worked out a, a system there uh, or a response to that specific issue. I mean, the general answer would be um, that it, it gets down into that strategic level. Um that if if we can see people with legal expertise engage in that area, um, you know, issues like in the housing sector with redlining, we can undermine uh, unjust political structures that oppress people. And the same would be be true in that consideration. Um, ultimately, though, to answer your question, I would say that as a minister, um, I know that we need to do something about that. And this was in my section on multiple pathways. But I'm not exactly sure what to do that, nor am I called to do that, because I'm called to rightly divide the word of God, to oversee the flock, and to shepherd shepherd the people and to preach, you know, and devote myself to prayer. Who am I going to call alongside of me to go address that issue? Well, that's where I bring my uh, legal expertise in my congregation or the broader community of Christ and just toss the ball in the air and just ask the question, what do we do about this? And I let them answer that, that question. So you asking me that question, I don't really know. I would, I would ask the people that know, though. Um, yeah, so. Great. Um, my name is Jeff Brown. I'm a Ph.D. and North American Missiology student. And uh, when you take a look at the uh, kind of climate of America, you can just look at Ferguson or Baltimore. It seems like um, it seems like race, race relations are actually getting worse and not better, uh, maybe partly due to, to, you know, situations with the police and such. But it seems when you take a look across the landscape, we're getting worse, not better. And so what I was wondering is that is that um, 
Well, what are your thoughts on that? Is that is it something that that is just now coming out, or is it some is this a history of it? And the second part of the question is, what I do? I'm a I'm a white guy who uh, preaches at a predominantly white church uh, in a predominantly white town. And um, is there something more that I can do without um, both staying true to Scripture? So does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Great. I think um, to the question, is it getting worse? I've taught a lot of history classes, and I would say throughout human history, um, it's just as bad as it is today. It may be subtle and simmering under the surface, but racism is a human reality that the new heavens and the new earth, we will not escape. <clears throat> I'm firmly convinced we will not escape that until then. But race is probably one of the greatest means that God gives us to die to ourselves and to uh, grow in Christ. Because as we um, thoughtfully and intentionally pursue healthier race relations within the body of Christ. And honestly, it's something that only we can do through the power of the Holy Spirit as we speak the gospel to our own hearts and to one another. Uh, As we pursue that in in an intentional way, um, we can offer a picture of what this actually looks like. So in Atlanta, I have five men that I consider to be close friends, and only one of those is white. Um, And part of that is intentional. Part of it is just the way uh, my life has shaped up in Atlanta. Um, but, you know, particularly through Ferguson, uh, we had some very uncomfortable conversations where things were said that I didn't necessarily agree with. But as I just reflected on it and listened, um, I really struggled to know, is this because of just my cultural sentiments and, and my my own ethnicity being offended? Um, those kind of things. So that's kind of what that looks like. It's a very uncomfortable, only by the power of the Holy Spirit conversation. As far as your particular uh, context, it's just pursuing intentionally any. I mean, if unless it's completely vanilla, maybe some people of color live there and intentionally pursuing it. Um, yeah. Good. Other questions? <clears throat> you mentioned, <clears throat> sorry, uh, Matt Rogers. I'm a PhD student in missiology here, pastor in Greenville, South Carolina. You mentioned in your multiple pathways contributions some techniques to avoid overburdening the pastor in this area, particularly utilizing community liaisons, city architects, city strategists. I'm curious if you could tease that out a little bit and then speak to, uh, as a church planter, uh, those early days of church planting, where would you begin? Like, what are the priorities that you would put on the pastor's to-do list in those early stages to protect from this weight of, I've got to do everything when you're a core group of 10 people in the city? Where do you start? Yeah, I think whether it's a core group of 10 or an established, long-standing church with 100 years of history, the, the, um, the issue is tapping into assets that God has placed in our midst. So um, finding the people in the body of Christ who can minister alongside of us. So basically, I see the role of the pastor as to guide to guide this. Like, what are we actually trying to do here? We're not just trying to come in and create a utopia and, and get caught up in the, the... And that's the reason why I talk about it in terms of sober optimism, that it is so easy to become so optimistic about things we can change. And I pick up on this in a lot of churches and pastors that I interact with, that, that they'll have a concept that I really I really think, do you think that, you know, I question, do you think sin actually still exists? You know, um, but... They, our role is to guide that and help 
shape it theologically and help shape what are we actually trying to accomplish here so that we do not drift off into social gospel and so that we do not drift off into anemic ecclesiology so inwardly focused. Um, so I think whether it's a church planner or a pastor in an established church, that's the, the ultimate goal. Um, then the the issue just is around creating creating a healthy conversation with the right right people in your congregation, people who are ministry minded, um, and and just talking with them through the issue of what would it look like for you to serve, and some of that will be a guided uh, service through you know using the funnel institutional high level. Um, commitments that are small in training, small in expertise, and small in time commitment. Um, but then hopefully seeing the Lord prick their hearts uh, in the midst of that service to move to strategic areas of service. And so I think ultimately it's just guiding the conversation and just keeping it on track. I think the greatest hindrance that I see in local churches is pastors feeling like they have to have everything figured out before they engage in social injustice. And as we know, uh, you know, social injustices are so complex, uh, you could sit around and talk all day long uh, for days on end and never do anything. So one of the primary principles I teach churches, seven steps to engaging. Uh, one is biblical teaching with a bias towards action. You've got to know what the Bible says about this particular issue you identify and you want to uh, address, but you have to have a bias towards action because it's always better to do wrong things and apologize and ask for forgiveness and go learn. Not that you should want that, but it's better to do that than to never do anything at all. So biblical um, teaching with a bias towards action, but just mainly guiding that process as a pastor, that conversation. Um, Greg Lamb, yes, I'm a PhD student here in New Testament, yeah. and I just wanted to say, you know, I love your passion, I love your heart, you know, for the least of these. And in 2007, uh, God called my wife and I to uh, to begin a Lucan ministry in our community in Sanford, North Carolina. It's about an hour south, and we're a minority in our community. <clears throat> but sadly, very few churches are reaching their culture uh, in our community. Uh, it's mostly monochromatic churches. Uh, but through our ministry, uh, I tried to model Vin and Anderson's three self rule, um, mm-hmm. and 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 we have incorporated, you know, since the seven years, God has allowed us to, you know, obtain a 501c3 status and grants. We're doing a lot of grant writing to get the funding to really make a difference in our community. But one of the things we have have done recently is within the last year, three families have joined our board now and are taking ownership and leadership, you know, in the ministry. And what advice, I guess, uh, from a practical standpoint, would you give me, aside from just bringing on new board members in leadership positions, what are some other ways that you may recommend to us for getting these people, you know, these people who have real skills, when we all have skills, we all have, you know, uh, a network, a sphere of influence, how can we get these families, you know, taking ownership? You're talking about the three families or the families that your ministry? Well, just the families that we serve. I think um, it's it's the issue of empowerment. Uh, it's the issue of empowerment, and you know I, th- I think you don't do things for them, but you do things with them. 
and so they have tremendous assets. I mean, they're economically poor. Uh, we, you know, so often look at them as as um, and just have pity because you need my help. Um, but we miss the whole fact that they're image bearers of the Lord and they bring um, all kinds of capabilities to the table. So basically empowering them and enabling them to address issues. So you have issues. We see these needs. And what are we going to do about it? And you have that conversation with the very people you're ministering to. So not only does it build a culture of empowerment, it changes their mentality that I'm, I'm here and you're, you're supposed to be helping me to actually, oh, wait, we're going to do this together. Uh, I, think, I think that's a huge shift. And what you're doing, I would say, to go back to the previous question, would be an answer to not burdening the pastor. To have someone like you going in and, and ministering alongside the pastor, that, that is the essence of a community developer. Um, and what you'll probably see, so you're not working through a local church? We're strictly a very church ministry, and all, most of our volunteers are laity in other churches. Right. Uh, and, and you know, we haven't had churches and so what I would strongly say, I mean, this is the ideal of, of uh, like his bridge builders. And one point I was arguing in here is that you should see a local church arise out of that. Why do those people have to go attend church at local churches? Why can't they form their own church, a missional community approach? And I think, you know, in some cases we do ask them to to come across the lines and come into our doors as we minister to them. And there's all kinds of issues of uh, wisdom there that goes along with the extent of our mercy and when do you cut off mercy and uh, when it's no longer merciful and those kind of issues. But a great thing is is in the midst of mercy is to form a church there. And, um, and, that's, and that's the essence of what I was getting at with indigenous, indigenous leadership. Other questions? Uh, my name is David Calvert. I'm uh, in the theology and worship track um, and praying about being a part of a church plant in D.C. Uh, lead planter is already there and is doing a lot of work. He's part of a, a Sin D.C. initiative. And um, one of the things that is interesting about the particular neighborhood that they're in in the Union area is they're right near the H Street corridor, which is a locus of gentrification. And so you mentioned some some concepts tied to gentrification towards the end of uh, the paper there. And so I'm curious about your thoughts um, where community transformation is a goal and gentrification is a kind of community transformation. Mm-hmm. So when largely uh, you know, white leadership goes into a community that's being gentrified, what are ways to maintain gospel distinctions in the kinds of transformation that are happening? Um, just what are your thoughts about uh, strategies for being in that kind of urban context? Well, I think... Um I, w- I would like to say as a footnote here that I don't think gentrification is necessarily bad. Uh, the way it typically happens 95% of the time is awful of displacing people. Um, but we do want to change communities uh, for the positive, but we want to control the gentrification. But in contexts like that where gentrification is just displacing certain people groups, um, you know that that to me is the what, what one thing that we have uh, conversations about behind closed doors. Um, so not any longer, I guess, is that a lot of our a lot of our church plants are going into gentrifying communities. 
so the more plaid you have, the skinnier the jeans, the um, you know is going to be the place where people plant churches. But what I'm hopefully getting at in this paper is to go into a community and then hold off that kind of gentrification and bring about a positive gentrification led by the people that live there, uh, and they change their own society according to the gospel and plant a church, you know, that kind of that kind of thing. But in your particular context, um, you know, I think I think that's a very very common common issue. Um, I don't think you will ever see a community like that completely gentrified. So you do have the opportunity, as you said, to uphold a gospel distinction compared to people that really just want to push out the people that that we don't want because they look different than us, they make less money than us, whatever the issue is. Um, you can actually plant a church that has those people as primary leaders in the congregation, uh, which is it totally... It totally upends any kind of mentality of someone who wants that kind of gentrification to happen. Um, yeah. um, Heath Thomas, director of PhD studies at Southeastern. I'm going to go ahead and ask a question. Um, first of all, thank you for your uh, paper. Really interesting, stimulating, I think, for all of us. Uh, got us our wheels turning. It certainly did mine. So thank you for that. But one of the things that it did raise for me uh, you'd mentioned the distinction between the organic church and the institutional church, church's <coughs> organism and church's institution, and I appreciate that distinction very much. I guess my question is, um, I think that that's a functional distinction, isn't it? It's talking about the church gathered and the church scattered. Is that is that how you're using that in the in the first? Yeah, gathered and, and for that, worship, and that's, scattered for witness right, right. kind of yeah. Uh, yeah, holistic in mission. Okay. In that sense, that's the way I use it, yes. Okay, so, um, on the, okay, so I've, I've heard you rightly there. Uh, I guess on that vein, my question is, um, when we're talking about restorative mercy, uh, where is going to be the biggest bang for the buck? Um, is it going to be through the institutional church? Or is it just necessarily going to be people doing what is, they think, uh, their Christian mission in the world, if they understand mission along those terms? Uh, is it just going to be them uh, in their communities or their, their business groups or whatever just righting wrongs, and, uh, you know, instituting justice as you've defined it? Or is it going to be through the local institutional church, you know, Saddling up to you know prison ministries or you know abortion care ministries or or whatever. Uh, I, I guess that that was a bit fuzzy to me um, from your talk, and I'd really be interested in. Uh, so I'm, this is a bit of a more pressing question. I'm pressing you a bit further than, than do, what yeah. you did. So, but that's that's my question. Yeah, that, I mean that's a great question. I think uh, first of all I would say that um, that's a a question that has yet to be determined because with the resurgence of mercy in Southern Baptist life, what does it actually look like for the institutional and organic church to work together? Historically, at least, uh, you know, over the past last half century, maybe going back to uh, a reaction against the social gospel, uh, you, you have anyone who's interested in this only operating in an organic sense. I think there's a recovery between the two um, where it may be a both and. 
Um, I think my answer is it is the organic church operating to address issues like you're saying in and through the institutional church. So we do not want to separate their activity and their ministry. You don't want to have a group of business people to unite together to create an association of local business people that create jobs for the poor. I mean, that's great and all, but are they going to disciple? Again, going back to it's got to be so, so tied to relational uh, discipleship, communal living, community living in the gospel so it has to be the organic church going out and pressing into areas through their organic means, but tied to the institutional institutional church. So I think it, I think the two need to be wedded together. I don't want to make a distinction there. I think the distinction is helpful to help us to to see that there are things that we do institutionally. Uh, but there are certain things that are outside the parameters. And just wisdom would say we don't want to do that. Maybe we want to start a 501c3, but we don't want to create 10 different organized ministries that we uh, allocate budget budgetary means to fund those things, uh, where they're always you know, uh, dependent on the church's budget and tithes to fund them. Um, when a, a business is going to give jobs and entrepreneurial opportunities to the poor, that should be able to operate at a standard of excellence that would live or die or, or that would live apart from the church. Um, and I guess that's the, that's the real question that I have is in what sense is that not church work? Well, in the sense, what do you mean by church work? Well, that's, that's my point because you've got the distinction between the institutional church and the uh, organic church. Right. <clears throat> the church, if, if we just define the, the church, its kind of core identity is the gathered community. Well, okay, let me start. The, see, that's where I would say that's an anemic ecclesiology if you see that as not church work. Because okay. I think okay. even though it's not funded by the church, it is church work. And we should be praying for those people and you know, blessing them and figuring out how to how does that fit into the life of the church? Yeah. It, it should be church work. Well, I like that. Work. I like that answer. I like that very Even much. Even though it's not yeah. funded by the church. So. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. Tom. Yeah, my name's Tom Cribb. Uh, I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church, Chase City, Virginia, and I'm a Ph.D. program in New Testament. You know, I, um, I worked in the public schools for a couple of years, and uh, I know where we're at now, there's so many poor people. Public schools are active, actually, in giving in our local community, giving food to poor people and things like this, and churches are trying to assist them. And I think public schools are a, a way we can help. I know we, we in the evangelical world are so suspicious of public schools, but yet I've been in them, and I think they could use our help, and we can make a difference there. We, you know, we can't obviously preach and share, but you can certainly have a witness by giving supply. A lot of schools can't even support. They can't even uh, help. The kids don't even have enough supplies. Uh, backpacks and all sorts of things like that. I mean, we we got a public school that actually gives food to feed a whole family for the weekend, mm-hmm. and that's every weekend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, that's what a public school can do. And you got Christians that are teaching in the public schools, and sometimes we forget that, particularly in inner city areas. I've been in inner city schools. I've taught in them, and, and we can make a difference by supporting and helping and doing what we can. We can't <clears throat> obviously take over and go in there and preach or anything like that. But there are openings that we can. We shouldn't look at them, I think, as the enemy. And we we can partner sometimes with them and help them. And I think, you know, out of that, you know, you might pick up some people. 
anyway. Yeah. Okay, so let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Try to take the Jesus route here and ask you a question um, to answer your question. But what would you say to the pastor that says, I will not minister, I will not do what you're talking about because I can't preach the gospel, and therefore it's outside of my parameter? And, and it's got to be a quick answer because we're okay, almost out of time. I'm just saying, so. you know, <clears throat> incarnational ministry, I mean, a small town, people know what you're doing. They see it. Um, there are other openings. Um, I don't know. I think it's just a witness to the community. I, yeah, you can't. I, I know you can't in public schools. <clears throat> but, but I do think the people in the community see your involvement. <clears throat> And I think they're attracted to what you do and want to be a part of it. Well, Dr. Thomas, you're from Texas, right? So you want a Texas two-step, is that right? So I think serving in your public school is, is like the Texas two-step. So it's maybe not a um, interstate directly to your goal of preaching the gospel, but it's a two-step process of doing exactly what you're saying. You're going in and meeting significant human need, winning favor in... Your in right, and you're winning favor in your community, and then that... Naturally, people are, what in, the, what in the world are you doing here? Why, why would you do this? And you just share the gospel in the midst, in the midst of that. Um, but you do have to play by the rules of the game. The reason why we hate steroids in baseball, and, and I'm a baseball lover, is because they're just violating the whole purity of the thing because they're not playing by the rules. And I would say that in mentoring in public schools that there is a desire there to not have the gospel preached in public school. And if we're going to operate in that level, um, you know, we need to, in that realm, we need to respect their rules. But the conversation is going to happen. And, and I could give a thousand examples of going in and just doing what the principal asks. And ministry galore comes out of that. And they're not anti-Christian, as you think Right, right, exactly. I've, I've yet, I've approached three different schools and operated in three different schools, and I've yet, all three of those, I've never, you know, I never had an issue with any of those principles.